Good morning, everyone. What an amazing day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. Come, everyone. Clap your hands. Shout to God with joyful praise. Let's shout and sing and clap our hands today.
service plan for you. It's going to be a little different than we normally do. It'll be a little flip-flop. Right after I get done, welcome. We're going to receive the offering, and then Trevor will come up here and preach. He's finishing up his series about the Lord's Supper. And after the message, we'll uh, get to observe the Lord's Supper, sing some songs. It's going to be a good Sunday. Hey, next week, we're starting a brand new series in 1 Kings. We're going to learn about the prophet uh, Elijah. Really excited about that. I believe it's going to go about three weeks. Encourage you to catch every one of those so you can get a good grasp on one of those Old Testament prophets. Looking forward to that. Hey, if you look at that uh, worship guide that you should have received on your way in, go ahead and hold one up. I didn't bring one. There it is on the screen. There's that worship guide. You can follow along with what to expect in the, the service here. You can also see some events. Check that first event out. What's that say? Easter is in how many weeks? Six weeks. Easter is going to be here. Here's how I'm preparing. Encourage you to prepare in some way. I got four people I wrote down that don't go to church. I don't think they know the Lord. Uh, I'm going to invite them. I got six weeks. I'm going to pray for them every day for six weeks, and I'm going to invite them to church for Easter. Easter is an easy invite. Two are easy buttons. I know they'll come with me. Two, I don't know. I only know their name. So, hey, if you don't have anyone you're praying for, I encourage you to get that list together. If, if you don't, pray for my list, okay? Because I'm going to fill up a seat. I'm going to take over a whole row here. So I want to uh, get some folks here so they can hear the gospel. Looking forward to that. Um, on the back of the worship guide, you'll notice a little bit about... Um, guest information. So if you're a guest, this would be easy uh, for you. Go ahead and look look through that information. Look, I know I anytime I go someplace new, I want it to be comfortable. I don't want to be pointed out. So we understand it's hard. So we want to make it easy for you. I do want to encourage you uh, before you leave, go by the guest services in the lobby there. There's a gift for you. It's excellent. Uh, don't want to leave you empty handed. We're from the South, right? Either if we can't fill you up, we're going to fill your hands up. So make sure you get a gift on your way out. Um, hey, last thing I'm going to do, though, I'll get off the stage, is we're going to receive the offering. And as the ushers are, are preparing to receive the offering, uh, I wanted to kind of give you a thought as we're giving this morning. And here's the thought. I, I think there's two uh, different people in this world, okay? Especially when it comes to movie theaters. There's one that shows up to a movie theater early, stays, gets the popcorn, stays the entire movie, and then wants to stay through the, all the credits... And they won't leave until they get kicked out. This is my wife. She wants to experience the movie theater fully. The second type of person is me. I want to show up exactly when the movie starts. And I want to be gone as soon as... I don't want to see a lick of credits. And Marvel movies have really messed this up for me. Because you can't, right? So they messed it up for me. And the reason I say that is because if you actually do stay for the credits... I was watching Star Wars and I, I was looking at the credits. And here's, here's some of the people that made Star Wars happen. There was producer, director director, a second unit director, an animator, a set designer, photographers, drivers, grip and key grip, I don't even know what that is, animal trainers, let's go, hair designers, government liaison, there is a crew of people that made that movie happen. And I thought, that's a lot like church. You know, you have this crew of people that make all this happen from the folks who are up in the loft, sitting in the dark, up there, making sure you have a comfortable environment to the band who works really hard, they're here before I'm here, to the people holding babies who are crying, trying to comfort them, love on them, to small group leaders in the back of kids, to their small groups having around. Man, there's so many people. These ushers standing right here, ready to receive the offering. So many people make all this happen. And I just wanted to say thank you. If you have a part in the church service, as a Great Commission church, man, thank you. Look, maybe you think, hey, I don't do a lot, but I bring, I bring guests. Hey, you're an evangelist, good job. I give. 
thank you for that. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful in Jesus' name to um, make all this happen. God, you've been so good to us, and we're thankful for this opportunity to give back what you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you'd have something special for all the volunteers today. That you'd speak to them specifically. You'd encourage their hearts today, God, as they're serving you and your son for your purposes and your kingdom. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11 in your Bibles, we finish up this three-part series today, Grace at the Lord's Table. And as we do, before we do, I want to just do some housekeeping items for us. And one of them is that yesterday, I went to hospice care, because one of our members has elected to uh, stop all treatments on her cancer and be made comfortable and live out her days at a place that can uh, make her comfortable without cancer treatment. And so she called me and she said, can you come see me? And I said, well, sure. And so I've been visiting her with the hospital and so forth. And so I got a free moment yesterday afternoon, went to see her, took some photos with her. um, And she said, pastor, I just want you to know I'm ready to see Jesus. I'm prepared. Uh, But I have some questions about my funeral and funeral services, and, and how, that, you know, how, how can we minister to my family that doesn't know the Lord? Um, what, what, are, what are my options in burials and all that kind of thing? And just wanted to talk to you about it uh, because uh, my time is short. I'm ready to see him, but I've got details to take care of. And I thought, man, you know what? That's a, that's a great thing to think about before we look at God's word today. And that is, are you ready for the next world? Because our sister Nancy is. And... You don't. You aren't promised a very long life, and neither are you promised that at the end of that long life, God will say, "Look, you only have a few days left, so you need to make sure you get all the details taken care of." The most important detail you'll ever you will ever settle in your own heart. The most important decision you'll ever make is whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. No Jesus, no heaven. No Jesus, no forgiveness. No Jesus, no eternal life. No Jesus, no God. And, and without Jesus, you get judgment. You get to pay for your sins, which is so silly because Jesus has already paid for them for you. And so there's not a better time to get your heart right with God, 
to become a Christian, believe in Jesus, turn away from your sins, change gods, dethrone yourself and let Jesus be your God. There's never a better time than right now. And you can believe in Jesus right where you're sitting. You can just say to him quietly in your heart, Jesus, I don't know what it all means, but I now believe you're, you're my only hope. You're the only way to heaven. You're the only way to know God, and I want to know God. I want to have eternal life. I, I, need, I need this burden of my sins to be taken away. Jesus, I heard you're the only one who can. Jesus, I throw myself on your mercy. If you do that, Jesus will invade your heart. He will come and, and take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He will change you. He will redeem you. You'll become a child of God, and God will go from being your judge to being your father. You'll have brand new life. You're sitting around people that, saw that, that that has already happened to, and they would tell you the same thing I am. Don't wait. Don't put that off any longer. Get ready for the next world. You want to be able to say like our friend Nancy, Pastor, I'm ready to see Jesus. Find 1 Corinthians 11 in your Bibles. The, the text is 17 to 34. And this is the Grace at the Lord's Table series. Now, in the Bible, the Lord's Supper text is, is, shows up four times. It shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in 1 Corinthians. And the texts all look the same or very similar, but they're placed in different books to make different points. We learned that it's in Mark's gospel to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. We learned that at the Lord's table in Luke's gospel, it's to show you that Jesus is the foremost prophet of God, and you're coming to the table of the foremost prophet. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it kind of puts the, the period at the end of the sentence, and it ends the paragraph, it ends the chapter. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper text teaches us that it is the table of the unified church. So the question is, when it's time for the Lord's Supper in a church gathering, how should we approach it? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven and 28 tell us, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Can we agree that's a heavy verse? That, that whatever being guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord means, that sounds fairly terrible. And then he, he follows that with verse 28. So, in light of something terrible, let a man examine himself. And then so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And it doesn't matter, depending on your past faith tradition, your spiritual leaders may have told the congregation to carefully prepare yourselves for the Lord's table by doing this. By confessing all known sin in your life. You just think of all the things that, that you've done that, dis that has disappointed in the Lord recently. You've, you've disappointed the Lord with those things and you confess those to him. That's, that's what it means to examine yourself. That's probably what you were told. Confess all known sin to God in prayer. I mean, how else would we apply let a man examine himself? And let me be very clear. We should be deeply concerned to honor the Lord's table. We should be deeply concerned to observe it properly. But what does it mean to observe the Lord's Supper in the right way? Friends, did the Apostle Paul have in mind for Christians to take inventory of our spiritual conditions? Did, did he mean for us to confess sin before we eat the bread and drink the cup? Is that what it's about? What does 1 Corinthians 11 instruct us to do? And for that matter, what's the function of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians. 
Paul wrote your letter of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. Now, do y'all understand that that's in the Mediterranean world? And we're not talking about the Corinth of Alcorn County, Mississippi. This is right down the road, two, an hour away. This is, this is a, a city in the Roman Empire back in the first century. They, they were pagans. There wasn't a church on every corner. There was only one church. We don't even know if they had a building. We're pretty sure that the congregation in Corinth was smaller than our church is today. Paul wrote this letter because they had written him a previous letter asking him some questions. He, he wasn't living in the city. He was a, on a missionary journey. And in the answers to the questions that he sent them, he said, hey, I've heard about you and your reputation. I've got some errors in your church that I, I need to correct. And that's your, your letter of 1 Corinthians that you hold in your lap today. The letter addresses several problems. And as best we can tell, there. In some cases, the problems in the Corinthian church were the worst in the New Testament. So the letter addresses these problems because Paul's been made aware of them. The Holy Spirit tattled on them and told the, the apostle to go deal with it. Let me give you four of those problems. And man, the first one is a doozy. When you come to chapter 5, a man was living in a romantic relationship, shacking up with his father's wife, and we're pretty sure it's his stepmom, but we hope, yes. Can we agree that's bad? It was so bad that the Corinthian city there, which was much like our Las Vegas, just steeped in sexual sin. It was so bad that even the pagans in Corinth said, can you believe what that church puts up with? That's chapter 5. The next problem is in chapter 6. Church members had gotten in conflict with each other, and they couldn't figure out a way to settle their grievances, so they were suing each other in courts of law. Instead of saying, do we have any wise people in the Lord here that could just help us adjudicate our problems? Another problem is, is that they were using spiritual gifts not to build up the church, but to promote themselves and build their own brands. Paul addresses that in chapters 12 to 14. And then you get to chapter 15, and you find out that some people in the Corinthian church even questioned the resurrection of Jesus and whether or not Christians, when they die, will they be raised from the dead and given a new body later. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. So this church was a mess. It was spiritually immature, but even the Apostle Paul says in the letter, uh, you guys are Christians, but you're kind of barely Christians. I mean, you're saved, but you, you don't have much past your conversion, and even... Though all that's true, every spiritual gift, you have it. You're fully equipped to have a mature church and to minister to one another, but you've got to come to terms with these problems first. And perhaps worst of all, and likely the foundation of all the other problems in Corinth, was their violating of the unity of the body of Christ. And, and here's how they did it. He deals with this in chapters 1 through 4, because chapters 1 through 4 focuses on disunity. And here's what had happened. The congregation was divided, and they'd started teaming up. I mean, it was Survivor. They started building alliances and voting people off and not even telling other people that they were even playing the game. And so there was a party spirit in Corinth. And, I, and what I mean by party, not necessarily carousing. I'm talking about like political parties, like factions, groups. So one group says, we are Team Paul. We like Paul's letters. We, he was in our church. We like his influence. And so Paul's the guy who speaks in our life. And, and some others in the church said, oh, yeah, well, our favorite Bible teacher is Apollos. We are team Apollos. We think, we think 
Apollos preaches much uh, uh, classier sermons than the Apostle Paul, and they're, they, they are, man, they're, they're super slick and oiled, and we, we like the way he turns a phrase. Apollos, he's an amazing speaker. He's our guy. Others said, we like a guy who's never even been in our church. He's probably dead now, but he walked with the Lord Jesus, and we like his letters. We, we are Team Peter. He's our apostle, and he's who we learn from. When we read commentaries, we read his. And then there was actually another super spiritual group, and they're like, you know what? We're, we're actually just loyal to Christ, so we're Team Jesus, so beat that. And the apostle Paul says, you're defeated already. You got different teams competing for different prizes, and, and you should be one team focused on the gospel. So this was, this was a problem here. Disunity in the body was at the root of the lawsuits we talked about in chapter 6. It was at the root of the Christian liberty problems in chapters 8 through 10. And they were, in the, in the ancient world, they were trying to figure out, can we go to R-rated movies? Can we drink alcohol? How, can, we, can we smoke and still be Christians? And wait a minute, that's what we've been debating about for the last 30 years here or in, in, in America. But the idea is, all that's addressed in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. How much freedom do you have? And the answer is, as much until you cause people to stumble and make it about you. Then, this disunity shows up in their spiritual giftings. They were, instead of going, how can I serve the Lord with these gifts he's given me to build up the church, people were going, look at how spiritual, I must be one of God's favorite. He gives me prophetic words. I pray for people and they get healed. I'm a supreme encourager. I have these administrative gifts. And I'm a great teacher in the church. That's 12 to 14. And my brothers and my sisters, the Lord's Supper passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, Paul situated it right smack dab in the middle of all of that. And he did it to make important points. You see, my brothers and my sisters, the unity of the church is the clue to the significance of Paul's teaching about the Lord's Supper. At the end, he's going to say, this is the table of the unified church. So how then are the Lord's Supper and the unity of the body, those two things, how are they related? Well, in chapter, in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, when Paul deals with the Lord's Supper in Corinth, those verses break into four paragraphs. I'm going to summarize them for you on the screen. If, if, if it's too fast for you to write down, you can email me, pastor.trevor.davis at gmail.com. I'll send you my notes for free. Uh, you can get in touch with me. I'll give them to you. Here's the first paragraph. In verses 17 to 22, the apostle says, look, I've heard about your church, and I don't have nice things to say about you. I have no praise because I found out you're all divided, and it is actually causing your Lord's Supper ceremony to be invalid. You might as well not even be doing it at all. Then the next paragraph is verses 23 to 26, and that's the reciting of the actual Lord's Supper verses that we're all familiar with from the Gospels. This, is my, this bread is my body broken for you. This, this uh, juice is the blood of my covenant spilled for you. You know the verses. In the third paragraph, it's verses 27 to 32, and Paul says, I need to caution you. I've got a warning for you. You need to examine yourself before you come to the table. Examine your church. And then after you examine yourself, eat and drink in a worthy manner because what you want to avoid is the chastening of the Lord. 
You want to avoid this God saying, I've had enough of you making a mockery of my table. And so there are some consequences coming that are going to cause you to think about this. You know what Paul says about them in 1 Corinthians 11? He says, because you don't wait for each other, because you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some of you are sick physically and others have fallen asleep. And that doesn't mean they took a nap. It means they died. God says, time to come on to heaven because you stopped being fruitful here. And then in verses 33 and 34, he exhorts everyone to wait for one another when they observe the Lord's table. All in all, the Corinthian church had developed poor habits in how they observed the Lord's Supper. You know what I love about this? There's so much grace to be found because our church over time develops poor habits and we have to course correct and the Lord has to show us and he chastens us and he he speaks to us from his word about these things. What I love is you can do it for the wrong way for a long time and God doesn't say you're off the team. He says, I'm gonna get you to do it right. You get to hit the reset button. It was destroying their unity and that's why he brings up the Lord's Supper in the letter to begin with. Can you believe that their practices were invalidating the Lord's Supper among themselves? Look at verses 17 and 18. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, and you should circle this in your Bible, since you come together not for the better but for the worse. You see that? For First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Team Paul, Team Peter, Team Apollos, Team Jesus. And in part, I believe it. I, the, the aftermath and what your church is producing, as soon as I heard there were divisions among you, that, was, that made it easy to believe. That phrase I had you circle in verse 17, when you come together, it's, it's not for the better, but for the worse. You know, you know the NIV, the New International Version English translation uh, translates that your meetings do more harm than good. I want you to, Think for a second. Make yourself a member of the Corinthian church in the first century. Put yourself in the chapel where they met or the big house, wherever it was, on the first day that one of the, one of the post workers in the Roman Empire comes and says, there's a letter for you on the post today. And it says it's from someone named Paul. And the, the teaching elder quickly grabs that letter. And he comes to the front of the room and he says, the apostle has written to us, and he says, I wonder if it's about those questions that we sent him. And he opens up the papyrus and he begins to read. Can you imagine? Because remember, there's no, there's no chapters and no verses in the letter. It's just one thing. Somebody reads it in one sitting out loud to everyone. Many in the congregation couldn't even read. They had to hear it. Can you imagine when they get to this section of the papyrus? It would be our chapter 11. And he says, the Apostle Paul says, hey, just want you to know, I don't praise you in this letter because you come together for the better or for the worse. I've heard about you and your church services do more harm than good. Do you think they stopped and sang a praise song after that? I think you could have heard a pin drop. And I think the next thing you would have heard was, would be the sound of tears and weeping. We've got we to rethink this. Your congregation is divided, Paul says. You're not characterized by love for each other. 
And if you're not characterized by love and you're divided, that's the very opposite of what the Lord's Supper illustrates in pictures. Here's verses 20 through 22. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not, the, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another's drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Can you imagine having the apostle, an apostle of Christ, tell you that your church meetings and your activities surrounding the Lord's Supper have actually been detrimental to the health of your church? How do you think they felt when they had that read to them? Now, I've read lots of commentaries on 1 Corinthians. I've got lots of them. I taught through 1 Corinthians years ago. What I found out is there's no consensus among conservative Bible scholars about what exactly the specific problem was when they observed the Lord's table. But we just read three verses that I can pull some things out, so I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to ask you some questions. I wonder, were the wealthier members of the church, were they arriving early, eating a meal together, and leaving nothing but the scraps for the poorer members, many of whom would have been freed slaves of the Roman Empire. And it says, in eating, each of you takes his own supper ahead of others. Were individual families eating their own meals at the gathering, bringing in the, bringing in the to-go orders in the bag? Do they have it door dashed, right? And in so doing, leaving the poor believers out because they wouldn't even have any resources to do that? Were the more honored members of the community receiving a better allotment of food because that was the dining customs of the Roman Empire. If you were wealthier, you got better stuff. While the rest were given food of less quality because of their social status. Because if that was happening, that denies the position as brothers and sisters in the only family that matters, the family of Jesus. Whatever the issues were, Paul says, one is hungry and the other's drunk. One had nothing, the other had way too much. And Paul's point is, nothing in the gathering of the church demonstrates our unity more than at the Lord's table. So I'm going to finish the message with two questions. Number one, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, if I can only go to the text here, and I, and I think that's all I can do, I'll summarize it this way. One way to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to eat or drink in such a way that scorns the church, that, that ignores the collective gathering of the church. It says, this is me and my family. We've got to do this real quick, or it's just for me. Another way to drink in an, eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to do so in order that the poor suffer shame because they don't have what you have. And you brought it to the table to remind them. And it's also to limit the Lord's Supper to your own social group and exclude any brother or any sister in any way possible, whether you meant to or you didn't mean to, whether innocently or thoughtlessly. That's the best I got from 1 Corinthians 11. I think that's enough, though. Here's the second question. How does the Lord's Supper communicate unity in the church? Pastor, if this is where we show it, well, 
In chapter 10, which comes before chapter 11, right? And every time. Paul uses the supper to explain why Christians shouldn't participate in idolatrous feasts right down the road at all the temple slash grocery stores in Corinth. These, these idolatrous feasts were pagan parties that included cultic and ritual sacrifices, and they did things at those parties that would be inappropriate for me to outline to you from this microphone with kids present. This was every day in Corinth. It really was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So what does the Apostle Paul say? The bread is the symbol of the church's unity. Now look, we, get, we, we buy oyster crackers and Chex Mix, amen? Just for, because we live in super germaphobe 2024. But for the time of the scriptures, and even now, I, got a, I have, there's an Anglican pastor in town who's a friend of mine, his church is smaller, uh, so they eat from one loaf and they drink from one cup. Amen? <laughs> no, I heard a no. I heard a no man, yes. Okay, uh, I didn't even tell you the best part. At the end, he presides over the Lord's Supper, and it's his job to finish off the cup. Goes around and he finishes. Thank God I'm a Baptist. That'll do, right? Whatever, I'm anything but that. I don't mean to make fun of him. He's helped me out in understanding the Lord's Supper. But we do, this, it's one bread, even though our symbolism isn't the same. And that's what Paul says is the example of the unity in the church, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For, for we, though many, are one bread and one body. Do you see the uni unity between the body of Christ and the bread? For we all partake of that one bread. My brothers and my sisters, the broken bread at the table marks us as a, uni as a united group. And to violate that unity is to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. 1 Corinthians 11.33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together, wait for one another. Let me tell you how I understand that word wait. It means that we're having a meal together and we are recognizing everybody at the meal. So we don't come and just eat and drink and go back to our seats. It's not a happy meal for Jesus in a drive through line. And so the way I understand obeying wait for one another is when I get to the table of the Lord, I look into the eyes of everybody eating, eating that particular meal with that row with me. I see everyone. I want them to see me back. I want to look at the trophies of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see who he's redeemed. I want to see who, who he's done for in their hearts, what he did for me all those years ago. I want to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord with these brothers and sisters. So I'm glad to look and then to eat and drink at the same time they do. Unworthy eating is not solved by confessing any and all sin. You, you ought to do that, but not to get ready for this table. It's solved by treating every member of the body of Christ as a member of his family. So all members of the church are welcome, all share fully in the meal, and all feel included because everybody at that table waits for them. This is how we demonstrate our unity. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11 doesn't address individual sin at all. You know why that's important? Everybody look at me. Yes, I said everybody. Everybody look at me. Your poor performance in your Christian life last week does not disqualify you from the Lord's Supper. It's just the opposite. Because we're not coming to the table to celebrate your good works. We're coming to the, te- to the table to celebrate Jesus' good works. We're remembering the new covenant where God does the work on our behalf. Two points of application and I'm done. Number one, in light of what we've been teaching on the Lord's Supper the last three weeks, you have to get rid of private Christianity. The fact that Jesus saved you from your sins is a personal decision, but it is not private. He saves you, and then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so when you come to the table, it's a us thing, it's not a me thing. It's collective. You can't receive the Lord's Supper on your own at your house by yourself. That's just called eating. But that's not even what the ceremony shows or, or, or illustrates. Get rid of private Christianity. And number two, embrace the local church as your most important community. All right, help me preach somebody. Here, here's what I think. I think Jesus is such a precious treasure. I think he is the pearl of great price in the parable. I think that he's so valuable and should be such a top priority that you should love his bride and not harm her and not criticize her and not boycott her. I think, from what I understand about the Lord's table, that the church should become so important to you as it is to Jesus that it should cause you to, stop, to start missing things out in the world in favor of church and not the other way around. If, if a church does that, they get a much better testimony. They, they'll see sinners come to Christ. They'll see these folks, they've really gone off the deep end with Jesus. I want to be accused of that. So I want to start missing things that my flesh loves in favor of what the Spirit loves, and that's the church. Finally today, Pastor Chris Stevens from Knoxville, Tennessee, was with us last week, and in our staff meeting, he told me this story, and I can't stop thinking about it. He says that when he and his wife went and visited the Holy Land in Israel on on a tour, uh, one night they were invited into the home of just a random Jewish family in Israel to observe their Sabbath meal together. Now, they're not Jewish, so they couldn't partake, but they got to sit on the other side of the room and watch this Jewish family have Shabbat, that Sabbath. And Chris said... It was amazing they ate different bread and, and drank wine, did this and that. He said, he said, but before the meal was over, the dad got up and he went to everybody in their individual seats around the table and he put his hands on their shoulders, every son, every daughter, and he spoke a verbal blessing on them that God would bless them and use them and fill them with his love for the next week until they meet again at the Sabbath meal. And the last one that he blessed was his wife. And then he sat down and then his wife got up and did the same thing until everyone had been blessed by mom and dad. Chris said, never seen anything like it. He said, when I got back to Knoxville, I got on the website of the Tennessee Department of Corrections. I wanted to know the breakdown. He said, and at that time, there was not one Jewish man incarcerated in the state of Tennessee. Does that mean they're Christians? No, it means they're Jewish. 
What does it show? It shows the power of parents around an important table and the legacy that it builds in children and the restraint it gives in the community and just the, just the advantage there is at being at a table like that. And I'm telling you, you're getting ready to come to the table and your father is going to lay his hands on your shoulders in the spirit and bless you one more time. So we celebrate at this table. Let's bow for prayer. Father, would you take the preaching of your word? We're just at halftime here in the service. I pray, God, that it would minister to the saints and get us in the right frame of mind for the table of the Lord. And I pray you take this next song as we listen to it, God, and bless, bless it to our hearts and our minds and change our thinking in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can remain sitting for this next song. It's more of a it's more of a, a teaching song, just a way to wrap up what Trevor's been talking to us about over the last couple of weeks. Um, remembering the table, the, the value of uh, the unity it brings. It, it, it bonds us together in, in love and hope and peace. So use this time as just a way to um, praise God for the sacrifice that Jesus did for us on the cross um, and worship him while we, while we sing this song. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share in this bread of life around. 
for you Drink and remember He drained death's cup That all may enter And to receive The life of God Take a look at this quick video as we explain who the Lord's Supper is for. We are about to participate in what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper. As members of Great Commission Church, we enjoy being reminded that Christ Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says, For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible also says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Lord's Supper is an activity where we rejoice together that we still believe in Jesus. We believe He is the one who helps us to keep loving God and loving each other. We proclaim He is alive and coming back one day. If you are a guest here today and share this saving faith in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. If you are not a Christian, or prefer to do this at your own local church, you can simply remain in your seat and observe how we do this. Unbaptized children can come to the table, but we ask that you withhold the elements and use this as a time to spark their questions and continue your gospel conversations with them. At this time, our ushers will release groups by rows.
Amen, church. After what we just heard, what we just did together, let's stand and worship our King loudly this morning.
another shout of praise, church, to our King. As we transition to the prophetic ministry time, we want to just, just prepare. God, we are eager to see what you're going to do. We're just excited to be in this room when the holy living God of the universe, the creator of all things, is going to meet with us. You're going to speak to us. So God, we can't wait to see what you're about to do. Let's sing.
bring us something new this morning, God, that we can hold on to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. Be seated. Every fourth Sunday of the month is Prophetic Ministry Sunday this year, and we are, this is month number two, and I asked the staff on the Monday following our first one, uh, and the God just moved in the room, and it was amazing, and I asked them the next day in staff meeting, how many people were, were anticipating Prophetic Ministry Sunday just on Saturday night? And they said, Pastor, about 30, just a few people have been training and praying, and the Lord was so good to us, and he came in power, and I was hoping for maybe three or four words to hit and, and prayers to be prayed and, and healings and just to have two or three to tell you maybe. I wasn't expecting like 45. And that's what the Lord did and served up last month. And, and uh, we, we, ended these, we ended the prophetic ministry Sunday in prayer. I dismissed the, the congregation. All the altar lines are open, and anybody can come for prayer. And look, uh, if you're a member of our church, I need you to come for prayer today. The prayer teams need to practice, and we need long lines to, to encourage people that, that the Lord is up to something. And even if, even if these prophetic words that you're about to hear don't apply to you, that's, that's irrelevant. That's not why we do this. We, we do this because the church should, Jesus said, I want my house to be called a house of prayer. So we're going to pray for one another, minister to each other, and we're going to have some prophetic people come up and share some things at the end of my talk here. And they're going to read what the Lord's just been kind of giving them, and they've been praying about for the whole month here. And uh, man, there was a strong one in the first service. Jenny Trent got up here, and she'd been praying over this word. And she said, I, there's a word that the Lord just kept bringing up this month for me that, about church hurt, that a church can hurt you in a way and maybe not even know it. And she said, I think the, Lord, the word that the Lord gave me was, you can either be offended or you can be anointed, and God wants you to be anointed. And she said, a person came to me after, that, after I, I, I gave that word and I, pray, I was in the prayer line, and a person came to me and said, that happened to me this morning. Would you pray for me? I, I, it's like the Lord came and sat down by me next to me in my seat. Last month, Marilyn Brooks uh, emailed us and said, I'd been having a sharp pain on my left side for a few months. It was getting worse. Stephanie mentioned from the stage that the Lord had impressed on her that someone was dealing with a sharp uh, left-sided pain for a while. And she says, that was me. I had no idea what was causing the pain. She's a nurse. But it was becoming distracting in my life. And after the service, I jumped into Stephanie's line and I received prayer. There were no lightning bolts, there were no earthquakes, but the pain left right then, it was gone and it has not returned. Because God knows where you live and he's been reading your mail and he loves you and he wants to bless you. And so what is prophetic ministry? Well, it's, the, it's where a church is both word and spirit. We, we have a high view of scripture and we teach the Bible and we, we love the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we want those two to merge. And everybody can prophesy to build up the church according to the New Testament. Here's what the gift of prophecy is. It's speaking human words to report something that God brings to mind. One of my friends says that prophecy is a time to hear from God for others. Um, it is the immediate and direct witness of the Holy Spirit. A prophetic word is when the Holy Spirit makes a person aware of something. It's a unique bit of information about the present or the future. And the New Testament teaches that this gift of prophecy is a major outlet by which God communicates to churches and by which he communicates to believers. I have you know that of all the spiritual gift lists in the New Testament, prophecy is the only one that shows up in all of them. And that repetition alone suggests that God expected this gift of prophecy to be regularly employed in the ministry of local churches to build them up and to show specific acts, aspects of the Lord's will. 
And what we understand from the New Testament is that men and women and believing children all can hear from God and they all can responsibly report what they believe they heard. I just printed this off from last month. It's our it's eight principles about the gift of prophecy that I want to share with the church to kind of to kind of make you feel better. I'm I'm show you our guardrails. And I'm just going to keep giving this talk until we've heard it enough that we get it. First thing, there's eight of them. Number one, prophecy is democratic. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he quotes the prophet Joel, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. In the New Testament, the last days begin with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and they go until Jesus returns. You're living in them today. So it's democratic. Men, women, children who know the Lord, they can prophesy, they can hear from God. Number two, prophecy is commanded and favored. We do this because the Bible tells us to do it, and God says it's important. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So we just want to obey God. Number three, the gift of prophecy is for the benefit of others. It's a time to hear from God for others. 1 Corinthians 14, 3, my favorite verse in the Bible on prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks three things. Edification, that means to build up. Exhortation, that means to challenge and encourage. And comfort, it means to console. And who, do the, who are those things spoken to? To men, to others. Number four, prophecy helps the congregation to build up the church. We, we build up ourselves in Jesus' name when we prophesy and we, and we exercise this gift. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, how is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, that's a singing, has a teaching, like a sermon, has a tongue, that's a gift, has a revelation like prophecy, has an interpretation, another gift. The Apostle Paul says, you do all of it. You let all these things be done to build up the body. Let all things be done for edification. Number five, prophecy is limited in public because we want to maintain order and we want to reduce confusion. First Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak. And I'm going to let three prophetic people speak in a moment. Let two or three speak. And then it says, let the others judge. These, these words you're going to hear, they've been judged coming and going. They were judged when they came to me, and I, uh, and I picked them out, and I prayed over them, and I set those aside, and they're going to be judged when they go out by your ears and by the church, and you're going to go, was that for me or not? Was that helpful? And we do that because 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 says, do not quench the spirit. And you go, I don't want to quench the spirit. Well, how do, how do I make sure I don't do that? The next verse says, do not despise prophecies. And then the next verse says, what if they get it wrong? Well, you test all things and you hold fast to what's good. Number six, prophecy can be done well. 13, 31, 32, and 33 of 1 Corinthians 14, you can all prophesy one by one. You can do this well, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. The gift of prophecy is not ecstatic. It can be controlled. It just doesn't come out of your mouth. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And then verse 33, God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. I find it in, um, in interesting that God puts that I'm not the author of confusion, but peace right in the middle of talking about spiritual gifts, as in all the churches and the saints. Number seven, prophecy is not on the same level as scripture. 
when one of our prophetic people reads a word, it may or may not be especially from God. That's just what they think they've heard. But it's certainly not something you treat with, like Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, Paul says, then let that person acknowledge that the things which I write, the New Testament letters, those are the commandments of the Lord. These just might be. And number eight, prophecy shall be governed. We're just putting, you know, when you go bowling and, you, and, and if you're a terrible bowler like me, you need those bars to come up in the lane that the kids use. All right, well, that's, that's what these are. These are guardrails how we're doing this today. Also, look, we don't prophesy silly things about you're going to have a baby or you need to marry that guy three, three seats over. And we're not going to be flaky and weird. Uh, we're just seeking after. We want to hear from God. You want to hear from God? I want to hear from God for others. I want to hear from him for you. So look, in just a minute, a whole bunch of people are going to come for prayer. You don't have to be a member of our church. These words, they don't even have to apply to your life. If you need something and you need to be encouraged and you want us to cry out your name to heaven and pray for you, let us pray for you. We are eager. Here's what we're going to do. Phyllis and Joey and Blair, they're going to come now. They're going to read their words. And after they read, I'm going to pray. The prayer team is going to come and we're going to dismiss the service. And we're going to seek after the Lord together, those who want prayer. Introduce yourself, Phyllis. My name is Phyllis McKenzie, and I'm on the events team here. And uh, on January 26th, I had a dream that uh, someone may be uh, struggling with a sinus issue on the right side. And on January 31st, I dreamed that there's a fluid buildup just above the right knee. And uh, randomly, um, couple of weeks ago one day I had a sudden pain on the left side on the around my waistline so that's a sinus issue on the right side fluid buildup just above the right knee and a sudden pain on the left side mm. around the waistline good 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 thank you Phyllis Joey my name is Joey Cox and um, during my prayer meditation I feel like um, I got a couple of things that God may have for us, maybe. Um, the first one is kind of a two-part. The first one is um, that someone has degenerated eyesight. Your eyesight's going bad. Um, the second part of that is Jesus, this is not the first time he's dealt with this issue. Um, he's, you know, I feel like specifically wants someone to know that in John 9, yeah. he did the unthinkable uh, and it wasn't their fault. It wasn't because of their sin. It's because God wanted to show up and show out in their life. That's exactly right. Um, the second thing I got that someone is having significant hair loss, and they should not be. It's not like me. I'm old and I get hair loss, but it's something that um, it's, it's to an extent that you should not be getting that hair loss. Hmm. And if that is you today, we're here to pray for you. Yeah. Thanks, Joey. So that verse before said that young men will get visions, old men will have dreams, and like Billy said in the first service, I guess I'm old, but I'm okay with that as our kids are growing. So um, January 18th, I had a dream, and, uh, and Jesus walked into the room, and 
he saw you, but you didn't look up at him. Um, and he grabbed your phone and he took it and he said, this is destroying your marriage. This is destroying your relationships. This is destroying your walk with me. And it's time to put it down. Um, and I think it's, it's better for a man to enter into heaven without his phone than eternity in the lake of fire with it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that was January 18th. On February 4th, another dream falsely being accused of something. Um, and you're scared about the consequences of what that false accusation might bring. And then on February 11th, another dream about, um, about um, your hair falling out um, in the shower and in a brush. So. Um, Go over those last two again, Blair, they're short. The last two, I'm sorry. Uh, February 4th, you're falsely accused of something and you're scared about the, the consequences of being falsely accused and on February 11th, um, you're worried about your hair falling out um, in a brush. Interesting stuff, how these things are coming in at the same time. All right, prayer team, if you'll come forward. We're getting ready to pray for folks. If you need physical healing about anything, would you come? Somebody came and prayed for me this morning. I needed a physical healing in my ear. I didn't even tell anybody, but the lady came and says, I, you, need, you need prayer for healing, don't you? And I said, how did you know? And she goes, let me just pray for you. Um, if any of those words resonated with you, here's, here, here's our thinking on that. Go to the person that shared that word. If it, if it was specifically you think for you, there may be special grace in this prayer time today from God to you through the person he gave that word to. So I'd go, if it were me, I'd go to them. You can go to any of our prayer partners and, uh, and they want to pray for you. If, you. if you're facing a huge decision in life, you need to be encouraged. You need, you need to have people stand with you. Come and let folks pray for you and pray with you. This is for God. Let's stand for prayer. When I say amen, we're dismissed. And I'm going to ask you to chat in the lobby, pray and minister to people in this room. So don't chat in here, chat out there. Father, come Holy Spirit, minister to your church through your church and by, by the power of your word in Jesus' name. And a faith-filled church said, amen. See you guys next Sunday.